This is Dr. Sean Canone, and welcome to this third clinical podcast entitled Pharmacological Approaches to Treating Dementia. Now, in past episodes, we've looked specifically at the role of acetylcholine in the brain and its effects on cognition through the engagement of the muscarinic 1 receptor. We've talked about Alzheimer's disease dementia and its relationship to insufficient activity of acetylcholine, which leads to the cognitive deficits, the functional losses, and the behavioral changes that we see in our patients. We've also talked briefly about the role of acetylcholinesterase drugs that serve to enhance acetylcholine activity in the synapse. We've also spent a little bit of time talking about ways to optimize cognitive function in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And this is by reducing anticholinergic burden or avoiding eliminating those medications that carry anticholinergic properties, specifically those that can block the muscarinic 1 receptor in the brain. So the question that we're going to address today is how do we go about selecting the best pharmacological treatment for a patient with dementia? Staying on label, maximizing benefit, and minimizing adverse events and side effects. While the options haven't changed much over the years, the last true new drug to come to market for treatment of dementia was Nemenda, which goes by the generic name Memmatine. This was approved back in 2003. Each of the dementia medications has a slightly unique story to tell and a slightly different pharmacological profile, and the purpose of this podcast is to give you a broad overview of these drugs and to give you some things to keep in mind as you consider drug selection in your patients, or as you monitor and seek to maximize the benefit of the current drug regimen. There are four FDA-approved drugs that can be used in dementia. Three of them are classified as cholinesterase inhibitors. These would be Aricept, which goes by the generic name Denepazil, Exelon, which goes by the generic name Rivastigmine, and Razidine, which goes by the generic name Galantamine. These three drugs seek to address the issue of cholinergic deficiency in the Alzheimer's brain, so they are pro-cholinergic, or enhancing the effects of acetylcholine. In addition to those three cholinesterase inhibitors, there is one NMDA receptor antagonist known as Nemenda, which goes by the generic name Memmatine. This drug works in a very different way, addressing the issue of glutamate toxicity or glutamate overactivity in the Alzheimer's brain. So it is working very differently on glutaminergic neurons and reducing the effects of glutamate in the Alzheimer's brain. Finally, there is one combination product that is FDA-approved. It's called Namzeric, and it's a combination of Namenda and Aricept. And now we'll talk about each of these medications in a little bit more detail. The first dementia drug here in the United States was Aricept, approved in 1996. It's indicated for all stages of Alzheimer's disease, mild through severe. It comes in both a tablet form and an oral disintegrating tablet form. The dosages are 5 10 and 23 milligrams for the tablets and 5 or 10 milligrams on the oral disintegrating tablet and these doses are given once daily. The second drug to hit the U.S. market was Exelon approved in 2000. It's indicated for mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease dementia or Parkinson's disease dementia and it comes in both a capsule and a patch formulation. The capsules come in 1.5, 3.0, 4.5, and 6.0 milligram dosages and are given twice daily. 
the Exelon patch formulation comes in three dosage strengths, 4.6 milligrams, 9.5 milligrams, and 13.3 milligrams per 24 hours. The third cholinesterase inhibitor is Razidine, which was approved in 2001 under the brand name Reminil. The name was changed from Reminil to Razidine because of the similarities in sound to the diabetic medication Amaryl. It has an indication for mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease dementia and comes in tablets, extended release tablets, and an oral solution. The tablets come in 4, 8, and 12 milligram strengths and are given twice daily. The extended release tablets come in 8, 16, and 24 milligrams and are given once daily. Finally, Namenda was approved in 2003. It is an NMDA receptor antagonist, which is how it got the name Namenda. As mentioned earlier, this drug does not work in cholinergic systems of the body or brain at all. It's working in glutaminergic nerve pathways. It's indicated for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease dementia, and it comes in three formulations, immediate release tablets, solution, and extended release capsules. The tablets come in a 5 and 10 milligram strength, and they can be dosed daily or twice daily depending on where you're at in your titration. Namenda Solution comes in a 2 milligram per ml strength, and Namenda XR capsules come in a 7, 14, 21, or 28 milligram strength and are dosed once daily. Namzeric, which is that combination of Namenda and Aricept, was approved in 2014. Namzeric is indicated for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease in patients who are pre-established on the 10 milligram dose of Aricept. Namzeric comes in a capsule formulation with 7, 14, 21, or 28 milligrams of Namenda XR combined with 10 milligrams of Aricept. And this is dosed once daily. For the sake of completeness, I should mention that there was a cholinesterase inhibitor in the U.S. marketplace prior to Aricept. It was called Cognex. The generic name was Tacrin. This drug was removed from the market due to cardiovascular toxicity. Now for the remainder of our time together, we're going to focus primarily on the three cholinesterase inhibitors, Aricept, Exelon, and Razadine. As you've already heard, they have slightly differing indications. Aricept is indicated for mild through severe Alzheimer's dementia. The other two, Exelon and Razadine, are indicated for mild to moderate Alzheimer's dementia. While these indications differ slightly, there is proven benefit with all three of these agents, even into later stages of dementia. And so while there is no indication for Exelon or Razadine in severe Alzheimer's disease dementia, they are acceptable for use in that realm. A much more important distinction is the fact that Exelon does have an indication not only in Alzheimer's disease dementia, but in Parkinson's disease dementia, which makes it the only drug approved in the United States for dementia outside of Alzheimer's disease. It's also important to note that Parkinson's disease dementia and Lewy body dementia are very closely related from a pathophysiological standpoint. There is good data with Exelon in the realm of Lewy body dementia, especially in reducing anxiety, apathy, and psychosis. Now before we get too much further, I think it makes sense for us to pause here for a moment and think about the etiologies of dementia. The most common dementia is probably mixed dementias, where you have a combination of Alzheimer's disease dementia, 
vascular dementia, and even some medication-induced types of dementia. This is very common in the long-term care, post-acute care setting. Alzheimer's disease dementia was talked about in a previous podcast, usually as a very gradual, predictable type of decline, which encompasses cognition, function, and behavior. Vascular dementia, by contrast, also known as multi-infarct dementia, usually has an abrupt onset, a stepwise deterioration. I would say, though, that sometimes vascular dementia can come on more insidiously and have a more gradual progression in patients with long-standing hypertension or atherosclerotic disease. Patients with vascular dementia tend to have more frequent falls. They may have focal neurological deficits from a past stroke. And while there are no medications specifically indicated for vascular dementia, Patients with vascular dementia were included in all the FDA pivotal trials for these approved dementia medications, and there's probably not harm in utilizing them. They may actually offer some benefit to our patients. Next, I'd like to talk about Lewy body dementia. Lewy body dementia is very similar to Parkinson's disease dementia. It's thought to be the second or third most common cause of dementia in the elderly, behind Alzheimer's disease, about equal in prevalence to vascular dementia. It's more common in men than women, and typically the onset is around age 75 to 80. They tend to have a characteristic triad of symptoms, which includes a fluctuating dementia or cognitive impairment. And what that means is patients tend to have some very good days, some very bad days, and overall, There is progression to the disease, but they have a lot of fluctuation along that course. And that's true of about 90% of patients with Lewy body dementia. The second characteristic symptom of Lewy body dementia is Parkinsonism, which again occurs in about 90% of patients. And then third is psychosis. Usually the psychosis is in the form of visual hallucinations, which is similar to Parkinson's disease dementia. And these visual hallucinations tend to be miniaturized, so patients may describe them as seeing babies or children or small animals in the room. It's also important to note that depression is very common in patients with Lewy body dementia. And often these patients come to us with diagnoses of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, which have been diagnosed inaccurately. Finally, it's important to note that these patients can sometimes have a high sensitivity to the motor side effects of antipsychotic drugs because of their already low levels of dopaminergic activity. There is one other form of dementia which is actually reversible, which I'd like to mention here because it presents very similarly to Lewy body dementia. It's called normal pressure hydrocephalus, or NPH. This is a very interesting entity because it presents with a characteristic triad of symptoms of its own. The first, cognitive impairment, which is very much like that of Alzheimer's disease. The second is Parkinsonism. And the third symptom is urinary incontinence, which can be very severe at times. So now that we've made our best attempt at an accurate diagnosis for the dementia, we look back at the medications and focus in on mechanism of action. I've already mentioned that Aricept, Exelon, and Razadine are all classified as cholinesterase inhibitors. However, there are two types of cholinesterase, acetylcholinesterase and butyrylcholinesterase. Both types of cholinesterase enzymes degrade or break down acetylcholine in the synapse, 
and thereby reduce acetylcholine's potential activity at the muscarinic 1 receptor in the brain. Now, the reason I bring this up is interesting. It's been shown scientifically that over time in the Alzheimer's brain, acetylcholinesterase production actually goes down, whereas butyrylcholinesterase activity goes up tremendously. Why does this happen? It's thought to be because of glial cells. Glial cells are inflammatory cells of the brain that come into areas of damage in Alzheimer's disease, and these same cells end up laying down these plaques that are sometimes seen on autopsy. So the more plaques in the brain, the more indicative that is of butyrylcholinesterase activity going on in the brain. So in theory, a drug that could block both acetylcholinesterase and butyrylcholinesterase could have advantages, especially as the Alzheimer's disease progresses. And this is true only of Exelon. Exelon blocks butyrylcholinesterase and acetylcholinesterase equally. Now, I don't want to get too scientific on you, but it's interesting to note also that there are actually three different isoforms of cholinesterase enzymes. So for both acetylcholinesterase and butyrylcholinesterase, there are a G1, G2, and G4 isoform. The G1 isoform is in areas of the brain that we're trying to target with Alzheimer's treatment the cortex, and the hippocampus, responsible for the cognitive processes of the brain and emotion and behavior. So it does not appear that it's beneficial at all to a patient with Alzheimer's disease to block the G2 and G4 isoforms of acetylcholinesterase or butyrylcholinesterase enzymes. And as a matter of fact, when you block those particular enzymes and increase cholinergic activity in those areas of the brain or body, you can have side effects such as agitation, bradycardia, and even muscle cramps and weakness. The bottom line is that a cholinesterase inhibitor that was specific for the G1 isoform would be preferable in Alzheimer's disease, and that is true only of Exelon. Exelon is a G1-specific cholinesterase blocker. Now let's turn our attention to safety for a moment. Safety really has to do with the reduced metabolism or elimination that could increase the peripheral side effects that come with enhanced acetylcholine activity from these drugs. Let's look first at drug-drug interaction propensity. It's least with Exelon. As a matter of fact, there are about twice as many drug-drug interactions with Aricept as with Exelon, and about three times as many potential drug interactions with Razadine as with Exelon. Why is this? It's partially because of the way these drugs are metabolized. Aricept and Razadine are both metabolized through the cytochrome P450 system, through cytochromes 2D6 and 3A4. So this creates a higher likelihood for drug-drug interaction potential through these metabolic pathways. Exelon, by contrast, is metabolized through a process called cholinesterase hydrolysis, which is important to understand. Obviously, these drugs are all inhibiting cholinesterase enzymes, but in the case of Exelon, when it binds to a cholinesterase enzyme to inhibit it, that cholinesterase enzyme will then turn around and hydrolyze Exelon, basically adding a water molecule and making it inert and inactive at that point. Exelon is then eliminated through the kidneys in an inactive form, so there's very little potential for systemic side effects from Exelon and very little potential for the drug to build up in a patient's system. Let's look next at tolerability, and by far the number one tolerability concern with the cholinesterase inhibitors is GI upset, which could lead to anorexia, diminished PO intake, and weight loss. These effects are really diminished when giving these medications with food or by using the extended release formulations. 
This is especially true of Exelon, where in its capsule form, if not given with food, can really cause a lot of GI upset. Whereas in the patch formulation, Exelon has a tolerability profile that approaches placebo levels in the trials. Now obviously it's very difficult to rely on a patient with dementia to give us a history of anorexia or nausea, so we have to monitor weights and watch PO intake, and if we think that that's being affected by these medications, we can do a few things. First, we can trial them off the medication to see if it changes. Secondly, we can make sure that they're on extended release formulations. Third, we can make sure that the medications are given with food, especially if they're coming in an oral formulation. Fourth, we can think about switching them from one cholinesterase inhibitor to another to see if it changes the tolerability profile at all. Let's now turn our attention to efficacy with these medications. And as I mentioned on a previous podcast, we want to be thinking about utilizing these medications not just for cognitive enhancement, but also in the realm of ADL preservation, behavioral stabilization, and for caregiver burden. But in terms of efficacy, there are a few things that we need to discuss. First, the issue of cholinesterase upregulation. This is a very interesting phenomenon. It's well described, but poorly understood, where exposure to a cholinesterase inhibitor will over time result in the body altering its production of acetylcholinesterase, which is the enzyme we're trying to inhibit. So here's what the studies have shown. They've taken patients and put them on a cholinesterase inhibitor and then come back and do a lumbar puncture at a set time interval, and they measure the levels of acetylcholinesterase in the CSF. For patients who are on Aricept for 12 months, there are 350% increases in the levels of acetylcholinesterase. For patients on Razodine after 6 months of treatment, there are 200% increases in the levels of acetylcholinesterase. And for Exelon, after 12 months of treatment, there's actually a 50% decrease in the level of acetylcholinesterase activity. Now, no one really understands this phenomenon or how it might impact the treatment of a patient with Alzheimer's disease in the real world, but the hypothesis is that by increasing the production of acetylcholinesterase in patients on Aricept or Razodine, the body might be finding a way to circumvent some of the benefit of these medications over time. And our patients may hit the wall, so to speak, in terms of benefit. So what are we to do? Well, some would say go to higher doses, continue to escalate up those doses of the cholinesterase inhibitors to try to counteract this issue. Some would say use Exelon preferentially or switch to Exelon when you start to see a stalling out effect of a different cholinesterase inhibitor. And the third would be thinking about combination therapy, adding Nemenda to the cholinesterase inhibitor. At this point, I should mention a few things about Nemenda, although we won't get into much detail here. But Nemenda is an NMDA receptor antagonist, which I said earlier is acting in glutaminergic systems of the brain, actually decreasing glutamate toxicity or the overactivity of glutamate in the brain. And this happens in Alzheimer's disease over time. Now, Nemenda is a medication that's very unique in its pharmacological profile. It actually is arguably more tolerable than placebo in the pivotal trials. The most common adverse event of Nemenda is actually reduction in nausea. The reason for this is because Nemenda is not only an NMDA receptor antagonist, but it's also a 5-HT3 receptor antagonist. And by blocking this particular serotonin receptor, Nemenda can block nausea centrally. 
So it's interesting to note that Namenda can actually counteract the most common side effect of the cholinesterase inhibitors. Sometimes, in practice, when a patient's on neither Namenda or a cholinesterase inhibitor and you're wanting to get them to some form of combination therapy, starting with Namenda might be the better way to go. It's also important to note that from an efficacy standpoint, looking at behavioral data specifically, Namenda was shown in its pivotal trials to significantly reduce the most common psychosis of Alzheimer's disease, which is delusions, and also reduced agitation significantly. So to reduce agitation and psychosis in Alzheimer's disease is arguably better data than some of the atypical antipsychotics that are used for these reasons. And it does this with very little risk to the patient. As a matter of fact, there are no antihistaminic effects with Namenda, so there's no sedation or increased risk of falls. There are no anticholinergic properties associated with Namenda. And there is even data with Namenda overseas in the realm of neuropathic pain. So while there is no FDA approval or indication to use Namenda for neuropathic pain specifically, it's possible that patients may have some benefit in terms of neuropathic pain when on Namenda. With that, we've come to the end of our episode where we'll spend just a moment summarizing some thoughts on treatment of dementia. First, we try to make the most accurate diagnosis possible, knowing that there is not a 100% foolproof way to make diagnosis outside of autopsy, but we do the best we can based on the way the patient presents. Next, we've talked about this on previous episodes, but we always look to reduce anticholinergic burden by reducing the dose or eliminating medications that have anticholinergic properties. This can only help cognition. Then we warn patients and families that dementia, especially Alzheimer's disease dementia, is a chronic progressive degenerative illness and that treatment is intended to slow the decline of the illness. So we can't cure people. We often can't make them any better than they are at the point when they come to us, but we define our benefit in treatment with regard to the four realms of dementia, which are cognition, function, behavior, and caregiver burden. If we only think about cognitive benefits with these medications, we'll often be very disappointed, as will families, so make sure that we articulate the benefits of these drugs very clearly. Then as we look to treating, we think about a cholinesterase inhibitor to address the cholinergic deficits of Alzheimer's disease. If we're not getting the desired effects from that cholinesterase inhibitor, we should think about switching to a different cholinesterase inhibitor and not giving up on the whole class altogether. We should also consider Namenda, either as monotherapy or in combination with a cholinesterase inhibitor. There are some patients who will benefit from its glutaminergic effects. I believe it's also important to note that we should use Exelon preferentially in patients with Parkinson's disease dementia or even Lewy body dementia. And while the others are not contraindicated in those conditions, I think it does make sense to start with Exelon. And as we wrap up, remember that aggressive on-label management of Alzheimer's disease with these medications will often allow us to utilize lower dosages of other off-label, more dangerous medications that are often used to manage the behavioral symptoms of dementia, especially drugs like the antipsychotics, anxiolytics, benzodiazepines, and anticonvulsants. So the cholinesterase inhibitors in Namenda really become a best practice approach when we're trying to address behavioral health issues in our patients. Well, this brings us to the end of our podcast episode, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen this far. Hopefully this information will help you in your practice. 
help the patients that you serve. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out.